grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, where did we go? Hey everybody, <laughs> one of those days. Hey everybody, how's it going? I hope you're having a good day so far. I know I am, I'm having a blast, absolute blast. Anyway, we're up here this morning to do this and I'm really excited because my guest is talking about something that really interests me and that's past lives and sh involving children. Uh, my name is Charlotte, I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner and bouncing around of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means no matter where you're at, we can get to you. It might take us a while. California is a huge state. Like I always like to say is when people think of California, they kind of think of us like Hawaii, right? With beaches and bikinis and surfing. Well, we are like that on our West Coast. Get up north, it gets kind of colder. You got, instead of, instead of bare-chested surfers, you got guys in wetsuits. But that's cool, right? That's cool. But like I said, California is huge. We not only have the, the ocean area on, on the West Coast, we have mountains. We have big valleys. We have desert. We have, you know, all kinds of desert. All kinds of wide-open farmland. So that's why when I say it might take us a couple days to get to you, that's why. However, we do have mediums on staff who can call you ahead of time and kind of try to settle things down, assuming you have something paranormal going on, try and settle things down, uh, you know, um, before we get out there. And in most cases, they can do that. But, you know, it won't take us more than two or three days to get out to you. And we do it. Like I said, we have people down in those areas. Anyway, uh, my guest today, Tom Schroeder, is a journalist, just like, well, just like me. And he's written several books. And one book that caught my interest was Past Lives and Children. And he... Uh, what caught my interest with it was he looks upon it from a scientific point of view. So it should be an interesting interview. All right. If you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so already, hit that follow button, especially if you like what you hear today. We do this uh, six days a week. Uh, you know, Sunday is our, our paranormal reading day, but the rest of the week we have great guests on, like, like, like today's guest. And uh, you can check all those shows out. And that would be over at YouTube, our YouTube site, youtube.com forward slash at California Hunts Radio. That's another place. If you like what you hear, uh, do me a favor and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Because, you know, we're just trying to get those subscription numbers up. We're, through, you know, we're 300 away from that 1,000 subscribers. So we're building up, we're building up, we're building up. Um, also, for YouTube and Facebook and even people coming over from TikTok, you know, because we're broadcasting on YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, Twitter. Uh, if you leave comments... Or if you give me a happy face and show me some love, oh, there we went, disappeared. It's a Mario kind of day. And, uh, you know, and you leave comments and things like that. What it does is it puts us up higher in the FYP, which gets us out to more people. So if you could help me out with that, I'd appreciate it. Okay, that being said, um, I'm going to bring my guest in, and it should be it's going to be a very interesting interview. Here we go. Good morning. Good morning. Actually, it's noon. It's past noon here, but... Oh, that's right. You're two hours ahead, huh? Three. Oh, three? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Tell me about you, sir. Well, I've, I've been a, a journalist since my college newspaper days, and uh, I worked for a bunch of newspapers. 
Um, I worked for most recently the Washington Post, where I was editor of the Sunday Magazine until 2009. Uh-huh. And since then, I've been writing and editing books. I, in Old Souls was one of the first books I wrote. Um, that's the book you're talking about. It's called uh-huh. Uh-huh. Old Souls, Compelling Evidence from Children Who Remember Past Lives. And um, I also wrote a book called Acid Test, which is about the, um, the attempt to uh, prove that psychedelics can be an effective drug for therapy. Uh-huh. And, um, and I've written a number of other books, and uh, I've ghostwritten some books, including a book called The Operator, which is the story of Robert O'Neill, the man who uh, killed bin Laden. Um, so I, I've done a lot of a lot of different things, and um, and I've been doing it for quite some time. You know, I, I, I was looking through your books. Everyone's a different genre, pretty much, and I think it's fascinating. Now, coming into the book that we're going to be talking about today, like I said in the intro, what I found so interesting was that you didn't look upon it from a psychic's point of view or anything like this. You actually hung out with the scientists or, or, or research the scientists that, that were doing the research on this stuff, right? Right, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously you can believe in, in reincarnation for any number of reasons. You can believe it because you've had a personal experience or just because you have a feeling or because you really would long to uh, see a loved one again. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, that's always, I've always been uh, a believer in empirical evidence, you know, and uh-huh. I don't, I don't want to believe in anything just because I want to believe in it or because someone tells me to believe in it. If I, if I believe something's true, I want there to be evidence for it, concrete, physical evidence. And that's what impressed me about the man that I followed on his research, a guy named Ian Stevenson, and, um, you know, who died in the early 2000s. But uh-huh. when, I, when I first encountered him, I was doing a story for a magazine about um, uh, people who sort of re- re- regressed to remember past lives in hypnotic uh-huh. sessions. And I didn't find that very convincing because when they talked about, first of all, in the hypnosis, the whole idea is to sort of let your mind go and sort of go where it will and to indulge in your, you know, in your imagination. Uh-huh. And, you know, and so people came up with things that, you know, none of this, none of the information that they sort of related in those things was anything that they couldn't have gotten from like a historical novel or even a romance novel or just a history class. Uh, You know, they're remembering lives hundreds of years earlier and Uh the the things that they remembered were things that anybody could have known. Sure. And they're, you know, so I I wasn't that impressed with that as evidence, but when I was doing my research, I came across Ian Stevenson, who was a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia. Uh-huh. And he had been the head of the Department of Psychiatry there. And he had, a, he had always been interested in, um, in, the para, in uh, parapsychology. And he, he came across these case reports that they were all, you know, of different quality and they were, they were related in different ways. Um, but one thing they had in common 
was they were centered around a small child who began to speak spontaneously about what sounded like previous existence. And so he got interested in that and he started to travel the world, and this was in the 60s, um, looking for cases, case reports of these and, and then trying to track them down and to verify them. Uh-huh. Almost like a, a uh, really almost like a investigative journalist would, by interviewing witnesses, you know, by investigating circumstances, um, and and what he found was that in many of these cases, uh, that the children had said um, things so specific that they were able to identify a specific person who the child appeared to be claiming to have been a dead individual who Uh unlike the um unlike the hypnosis cases these cases were people who had died just previous to their birth some cases almost immediately in some cases several years or even a decade but you know we're not talking about multi-generations past Uh and in fact um some of the the um, the cases that he started to research were in cultures that believed in reincarnation. Um, so, you know, a lot of people said, "Well, they're just making these up to support their their beliefs." Uh-huh. And you know, what I thought was, "Well, wait a second. If a belief in reincarnation was enough to cause people to manufacture false cases of it." then wouldn't it be true that a disbelief in reincarnation was enough to suppress actual cases? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people would say, well, why aren't there cases in the United States or in, in Europe? Well, in fact, there were. There were many cases, um, not as many as known as, as in India and, for instance, in Lebanon, where the mm-hmm. Druze religion believes in reincarnation. But, you know, my own son used to say something like, when I was a daddy, and I would correct him like he was making a grammatical error. I said, no, right. I mean, when you're going to be a dad. So if he really had a memory of being a father at some point in time, I would have shut him down. And that's the way it would work, is that you would suppress these things. So I didn't think that it was really an argument against this, that most of these cases that he was studying were in cultures that... Uh, that believed in reincarnation because, you know, I I think obviously if they were open to the idea, then the children Uh would not be suppressed or not encouraged. And of course, some of these kids were suppressed anyway, because not all of these cases came from families that believed in reincarnation. And in fact, there were some where they were embarrassed or angry about that their kid was saying this stuff. What you know, in looking at the research and, and working, what impressed you the most about the this whole reincarnation thing? Because as a journalist, I mean, we're trained to stay down the middle with topics. You know, did this turn you into a believer, or or are you still kind of on the on the fringe on it? Well, that's a that's a complicated question, and and uh, Stevenson would ask me that too. And in fact, um, this book uh, came out. It will have been twenty five years in June. So in 25 years, so in June, they're coming out, Simon & Schuster is going to put out 
the 25th anniversary edition of this book. Uh -huh. And I've written a 6,000 word chapter explaining just that, just where I stand on my personal belief. And so uh, it's complicated. And if you want to find out, uh, read the book. In June, you can read the book. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So when you first started, you know, studying into this, what stood out to you the most about these cases? Well, I, I think the first thing that caught my attention was that Stevenson, you know, brought such an even-handed and uh, agnostic sort of approach to studying uh -huh. these cases. He didn't go in there believing that they were real, but he didn't also go in there scorning it, you know, and thinking uh -huh. there's no way this can be real, which is what a lot of his colleagues would say. You know, uh -huh. they'd say, well, the idea of reincarnation is absurd to begin with, so why pay any attention to this? He went in with an open mind. And the, the thing that really stood out to me was that here were cases of children who were saying things as soon as they could talk. So unlike the people, you know, the adults who were in these hypnotic sessions, they had no source of knowledge. So mm -hmm. if they came up, you know, they, they weren't reading novels and magazines or watching movies, you know, and they didn't have a wide range of acquaintances or an edu a college education to learn mm -hmm. stuff about the past. So when they started saying specific things that it seemed like there's no about that turned out to be true about uh -huh. people they'd never met, then suddenly you're finding it very hard to explain that by normal means. So that that's what impressed me. And the kind of things these kids would say is, you know, often it, it started out where they'd say, like, they would go by this go on a trip with their family to a town they'd never been to before. And they'd suddenly say, I used to live in this town. And they'd say, and I, you know, and I had, you know, my mother was very religious and my father had a long beard. Well, they're with their mother and father and they're not very religious and they don't have a long beard. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So the, the parents are going, what? And so then the kid over time starts giving more and more details. And they'll say, you know, I had three sisters and two brothers and they'd give the names of the sisters and brothers. And they'd say, and you know, and, and we lived in a big house and we had three water buffalo. Um, and uh, you know, and my, and my father drove a car, a black, a black car. And so, and sometimes they'd even give the name of a family. Uh -huh. And so what happens in many cases is that either the family of the child will send to that town to say, was there anybody by this name in that town? Or it would, through intermediaries, the uh -huh. family of that name in the town would hear about this and they'd hear, hey, there's some kid claiming to be your dead uncle, you know? And so then they would come and check it out. And either, you know, and, and in many cases they came and like the kid would say, you know, Aunt Betsy, you're here, you know, you, uh -huh. you finally come to find me, you know, things like that. And, um, and people would be witnessing this. And in many cases, the claims that the child made beforehand would be written down or they at least be told to many people. So Stevenson could interview these people and confirm that these claims arose before the two families met. Uh -huh. um, and there was one case, one case in particular, well, there were many cases that were astounding. But for instance, in one case, there was this little boy who 
claim to remember this guy um, who had um, died. And uh -huh. he, he, he said that I, he really liked to hunt and he liked to hunt with his friends. And that, so they went to the house where this, where the dead person let, lived, had lived in another town. Kid had never been there. And the kid walks into the house and he points to the wall and says, that's where I used to keep my rifles. Well, they look at the wall and it's blank. It's just this blank wall. And this is an abandoned house at this point. Nobody's uh -huh. living there. So the guy that they're with takes a hammer and smashes the wall and it breaks, the wall breaks open. And there, sure enough, is a, a little gun rack that is that somebody had plastered over. Wow. So there, those kind of things. I mean, there are a whole bunch of stories like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're really, you know, they're really quite remarkable and hard to explain if, you know, uh, in some normal way. When you started to look, like you say, you know, there's so many stories like this. How were you able to choose particular ones for your book? I mean, it must have been hard. Well, because I, what I decided, what I wanted to do, Stevenson didn't want a bunch of uh, what he called sensationalistic coverage on it. You know, there were all these other people who were popularizing things like the hypnosis stories, et cetera, and they were selling a lot of books. Stevenson didn't want that. What he wanted more than anything was for his scientific colleagues to take him seriously. So mm -hmm. he thought that, you know, having a journalist along would only make that harder because he didn't trust that they would, you know, do a serious job of it. So it took me like two years to convince him to let me come along with him on his research trips. And uh -huh. at the time he was 80 and he said, and his wife had said, you're not making any more research trips, but he's told me, well, I'll probably do another one or two. And so I persuaded him eventually to let me come along with him. So what I was, he was visiting past cases that he talked to years earlier to follow up on them. Uh -huh. And while we were there, some new cases sort of presented themselves. And, and so basically I was just following his lead and watching what he did and, uh, and seeing what cases that he wanted to go see. Somewhere along the line, I've heard that, you know, with, with these kids that have this, that when they reach a certain age, you know, as they get closer to teen or adulthood, this, this whole thing kind of settles down. Is that what you guys found in your follow-ups? Well, or? in general, what happens is that the kids start talking about it about the time where they learn how to make, you know, talking complete sentences. Uh -huh. And they, some of them can be very emotional about it. They can, like, like there was this one little girl who started saying, you're not my real mom and dad. And the, her parents would punish her for it and, uh -huh. and tell her to shut up, basically. And so one day... You know, the, the milkman was coming around and that doesn't mean this is India. So that doesn't mean the guy that delivers a crate of milk to the front door. It means the guy that comes to milk the water buffalo for them. So anyway, the milkman's walking by and the little girl runs out and said, can you help me? I want to find my real family. These people won't let me, you know, won't help me. And she started telling them her name, what her name was, her previous name and uh -huh. where they lived, et cetera. And she's like five or six at this point. And um, so the milkman is th thinks this is 
pretty strange. Um, you know, he's he's Indian, so he you know he's heard about reincarnation stories before, but still, yeah, it, it hasn't really encountered them up close and personal like this. And and he happens to know somebody in the town that this kid is saying he, she really came from, uh-huh. and she she named the family. So he talks to this friend, and the friend says, "Yeah, there is a family like that, and they lost their daughter." you know, about three years ago. And, and she was, she was like a young teenager at the time. Uh-huh. And, and she got hit by a car. And so that person told the family about it. And the family comes to see this, this girl and, and her family with, without announcing themselves. You know, some of the, some of these uh-huh. sort of elders of the village and the fan and the guy and the father of the family, they come there and they don't identify themselves because uh-huh. they want to see what happens. And the little girl was out, so the father right. invites them in and they sit in the courtyard and gives them tea and everything. And then the little girl comes back from playing, and as she walks in, she freezes, and then she runs to the man who is her father and jumps on his lap and say, "You've come for me. Please take me home." And so there are all these people who witness this. And, you know, like we went and first talked to her family, her current family. And then we went to this other village and had all these people who had witnesses say, oh, yeah. And then she came to the village and she was able to identify her brothers and sisters. And she even asked there was one one sister who had grown up and gone off with her husband's family. And she had asked, where is that sister? Where is she? I don't Uh see her. You know, so and and. And all these people are confirming that this is true. So, you know, so it, it is very impressive. And um, now I'm forgetting what launched me on this. But what was your question again? Oh, the question was, I had heard, you know, from previous oh, like, that they forget. people that, was yes. to, that they forget after a certain age. Right. And what happens is that when they're like seven or eight, about the time that they really start developing their own social lives in the uh-huh. current in the current. Uh, in their current incarnation, they stop talking about it. And, and they kind of, you know, they, they get kind of get vague about the memories. And this one woman who is like 22 says, I remember the feeling of remembering, but I don't remember the specific memories anymore. But what happens to the children who, where a family is identified and they meet Sometimes they develop lifelong relationships with those families. So they'll have two families. They'll have their current life family, and then they'll have their previous life family. And they have a relationship with them that last can last a lifetime in, in certain instances. There was this one, the one girl I told you about who was in her 20s. When she was a little girl, she started talking about them as soon as she could talk. And the uh, family, and she gave family, I mean, she named like a half dozen of her siblings and, and her mother and her father and her husband. You know, she had been, she remembered the life of a woman who it turned out had um, actually died of, uh, during surgery in the United States, who had flown, been flown to the United oh. States for surgery and died. And she, once the, these families connected, the daughters of the dead woman came to see her unannounced, as often happens. 
And she, the first thing she said to him was, you're here, you've come to visit me. And she said, and the first thing she asked was, did your uncle give you my jewelry as I asked him to? And wow. they, that blew them away because only the family knew that before the fatal surgery, this woman had told her brother that she, what, how she wanted her jewelry distributed if she didn't make it. And wow. only the family knew that. So this convinced the daughters who were now grown that, that maybe there was something to this. And um, so then once she made the connection, she started calling their father, her husband in her mind from her previous life, mm -hmm. like daily. This little girl would be calling him up. And he came to believe that she really was the reincarnation of his dead wife. And so he'd have these conversations with her. And then finally, you know, as she was getting older, he said, I really don't want to talk to you anymore. Not because I don't want to, but because you need to have your own life now and you can't mm -hmm. keep hanging on the past life. So he said he kind of cut, he said he cut it off. And that was when Stevenson had interviewed them, you know, mm -hmm. maybe like uh, 15 years earlier. So then when we go to see the family, and this family was a very prominent and wealthy family, and they did business um, in Saudi Arabia where uh, reincarnation is not cool. You know, people mm -hmm. don't want it. So they didn't want, they didn't want anything to do with this. And they also thought maybe this family was angling to get some of their money or something because they were mm -hmm. wealthy. And um, so when we knocked on their door, the daughters came out and said, we can't talk to you about this. You know, this caused the last time you interviewed us, this caused a big problem in our family and we don't want it to happen anymore. But their father was there and he kind of mm -hmm. lets us in and, and he kind of says, when they go out of the room, he tells us, you know, I told her I didn't want to talk to her anymore. But the truth is, I have continued to talk to her. And in fact, I still talk to her like once a week on the phone. And, um, and then the, the daughters come back out and I say, well, I mean, did you believe that she was really? And they said, you know, this is causing us, has caused us a lot of trouble, but I, we can't deny that this girl knew things that only our mother could have known. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I said, and then uh, some people say, well, people want this to be true. So they allow, so they kind of allow themselves to believe things and sort of maybe mm -hmm. unconsciously manufacture evidence, you know, like maybe she didn't say, um, did your uncle give you the jewelry I did? Maybe they started talking about it and then right. she seemed to pick it up. And they remembered it as if the little girl had right. bought it. You know, maybe that's right. possible. And because they want it so bad. And so uh -huh. I said, well, was it reassuring to, to see this little girl and know that your mother had, had not just, you know, disappeared forever, but she had returned? And they said, no, it was really, really haunting and, and disturbing. You know, this, this wasn't our mother. This was a little girl who was speaking with our mother's voice. And we found that very upsetting, actually. So, you know, so all these explanations for how people would fool themselves, mm -hmm. you know, there were always cases that would show that that wasn't necessarily the case. You mentioned earlier about 
you know, where the bulk of the cases are of this. And you mentioned that you don't find as many in the United States. Why do you think that is? Well, as I mentioned, you know, it could be because people instantly, if their kids begin to say stuff like this, they uh -huh. instantly shut them down. Uh -huh. You know, and the other thing is, it turns out that a lot of kids, I mean, when I was doing the book and, and ever since, I have lots of people say, you know, my, my cousin used to say that, you know, he was really from the South, you know, or, or my brother said once we were on a family trip and he starts jumping up and down saying, see that house, that house, I lived in that house, you know. So it turns out there are a lot, but they, not as many of them have the details that could actually lead to tracking them down. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that could also be because, you know, our society, families don't don't stick around as much. They're not three generations of the family living under one roof. So, mm -hmm. you know, social mobility is so great that maybe, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. But on the other hand, there are some famous cases now that have come to light in the years since Old Soul was published of um, American kids who do have very impressive stories mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's one one famous case of a of a kid who who appeared to remember the life of a pilot who was shot down in the uh battle in the pacific in a, he was a pilot and he started you know it started because there he was looking at he was obsessed with these um with world war ii and he's mm -hmm. looking at this picture book and when he's very little of a uh, of a plane, and um, and it has a it it had a uh, a little cylindrical thing hanging down below its uh, nose cone, uh -huh. and the mother said something like, "Well, that's the bomb," and the kid said, "No, no, that's not a bomb. That's a drop tank." And it turns out that this this is a model of World War II plane, uh -huh. and that thing there was called a drop tank. And it was a it's for spare gas, and it wasn't a bomb, so that got them curious. And and the kids started saying, you know, that his name was James, but he says I'm the third James, and and he said, and my best friend, and I was on a ship called, you know, and he and he gave the name, and he gave a name of a ship, huh. and he gave the name of what he said was his best friend, and it turns out that there was a ship by that name in the in the Battle of Iwo Jima. And there was a guy by the name that he said his best friend was um, on that ship. And it turned also out that the only pilot to die in, in that battle was a guy named James Leninger. And, wow. um, and he was James Leninger Jr. So when, when this boy kept signing his pictures, James III, he said, yeah, I'm the third James. Well, there was a James Leninger Sr., James Leninger Jr., and then this kid was named James, too, so the third James. So anyway, there were a lot of details like that. Um, that and, and, you know, and the, the parents, they there have been documentaries about it. They wrote a book, mm -hmm. you know, so it's been on, on television. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever parents start to publicize things, you can say, well, they have a motive to make this stuff up or to, you know, mm -hmm. to exaggerate it because they're, you know, they're selling books. Mm -hmm. But um, Stevenson's successor, 
at the University of Virginia, a researcher came down and researched this case. And he looked at documents that shut proof, for instance, when some of these claims the kid made about um, about the name of the ship and the name of the of his shipmate mm-hmm. on the ship, uh, they there they he found um, internet searches that were timed and dated that proved that they were that they were asking these questions before they ever met any of the survivors or any of the uh, people from there. So, you know, which sort of lends credence to the fact that they were investigating this, you know, based on stuff that they didn't know in advance. Right, right. And when you talk about doing research, what does that research entail? I mean, where where do you look, you know, to, to find background like this on people? Oh, well, I mean, there are all sorts of different. I mean, you know, in, in, in the book, I, I sort of, I, I kind of wrote it like a narrative where it's following the research because, uh-huh. you know, when even, even uh, 25 years ago doing research, I mean, Lebanon had just had this really violent civil war. Right. And, and, um, and, uh, and in India, it's still, you know, 25 years ago, it was a lot less developed than it is now. And so we would go back way back into the boonies, you know, it would take eight hours of driving on a bumpy road, you know, sort of dodging uh, camels and and, uh, ox carts and stuff. (laughs) It was very colorful stuff to get to these remote villages, you know, where these cases and and the villagers might, in some cases, they'd be a little hostile because, you know, here is this rich American guy coming in this fancy car and they're saying, where's our, you know, what do you, what do you, what's in it for us sort of attitude. Um, right. So, so a lot of the research is, is interviewing, interviewing uh-huh. witnesses and people who knew the, knew the children and the families and the children themselves. And then he, he also did things like, you know, the, um, he'd check police records because sometimes these kids would remember a violent death. Uh-huh. So he'd go and check police records. Remember, I told you that one little girl who, who asked the milkman to help her find the family. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Remember that girl, the the girl she rem- she claimed to remember, had been hit by a car, and so right. we went we went to this rural police outpost and started looking through records to see if we could find records of, of the accident, uh-huh. and um, you know it was wild. They, they were they were all written on these big ledgers, you know, and handwritten the records and, and these ledgers were in this closet stacked up and some of them were falling on the floor and you know we had to dig through all that stuff to find the mm-hmm. records of it and one of the things the girl said was that she had remembered falling from a from a height and and I said well that doesn't really match up because it says you know that this this girl died from a car accident gotten hit by mm-hmm. a car so then when we find we finally find the record of that accident in this in this uh, police closet and it actually says that the witnesses said that the car hit her and she flew 12 feet in the air wow before she hit the ground so suddenly i said oh she remembered falling from a height so you know there, there's great moments like that and and there was another case 
where a, um, a guy remembered being um, riding as a passenger in a car and his friend was a hothead who was driving and some car drove by and like shouted at him and gave him the finger. And so they started, so this guy started racing after him and they, he came to a curve and the car rolled. Mm-hmm. And he said he remembered lying there and they, they went to everybody else, but they kind of ignored him. That's what's mm-hmm. his memory. And he was the only one who was killed. Everybody else lived. So, you know, so we went to try to document this accident. And in that case, there was a, a newspaper, a defunct newspaper who might have written a story about it. Mm-hmm. And we learned that the newspaper's microfilm had been bought up by another newspaper. So we went there and we spent like a day in the microfilm room going through all these old things. And mm-hmm. then we found, a, sure enough, we found a description of the accident that matched his memory. So that's incredible. That, that kind of stuff. You know, there are other, there are other cases where there are birth, birthmarks on children that yes. seem to correspond to injuries from a previous life. So he would, he would document this by photographing the birthmarks and then he'd go and find autopsy reports or hospital records of the injuries that occurred to the previous personality. And he compared the, in, you know, the descriptions of the injuries to these birthmarks. Mm-hmm. In some cases they matched up really well. This is all fascinating to me because I mean, you're in a foreign country and you're having to do this research and this. It's not like it is here where you could go to the County courthouse you know, and then pull that stuff. I mean, you really, you really have to dig and find the places to, to, to gather that information. Yeah. And he had pursued this for, you know, 30, 40 years until he died basically. And, and he started in the early sixties. So, I mean, back then it was even, it was even wilder. And he, he was, you know, he didn't want he didn't want, he didn't care about luxury and he didn't uh, want to spend his whole research budget on hotels and stuff. So we uh-huh. were staying in some pretty rugged places <laughs> half the time. It was, uh, yeah. it was really interesting. I, I mean, like one place we stayed at in India, you know, I, there's like, um, you know, the, there's like stains on the bed and, and, and the, the windows broken. And I wake up in the morning and this crow is sitting on the bathroom window ledge calling waking me up and uh you know it was it was quite an adventure you made me laugh at the ox cart because um back in the 70s when i was around 12 13 years old or eight eight years old rather for the back we went to hungary and um you know while while it was still you know there were still old timers out there right so you'd be driving along on this country road, and all of a sudden you'd have to hit the brakes. There would be an ox cart with hay on the back. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to hit them, so you gotta either swerve or just hit those brakes really hard. So I know what you're talking about—that the ox carts. And that's what yeah. made me smile and well, laugh and, about and, it. And, and then just uh, throw some camels into the into that picture, <laughs> and you've got some really weird stuff. <laughs> So were the people, I mean, when you talk to the people, like 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 the one family, you know, the the guy, you know, kind of covered up. I can see how it could cause problems when this woman says it's, it's the mother and, you know, it can cause internal problems within the family. But were the families that you talked to, and because obviously 
they were receptive because they, the neighbors were coming up with stories too, or other people, right, as well. Well, there were there's a whole range. Some of the families were very receptive, and some were the families were were almost you know very unhappy to see us coming around, um, and some of the families uh, you know were themselves mystified by it and wanted to know, and and some of the families had accepted it readily and just figured that you know they this was another right. connection. You know that one. One family we, where we went and talked to the kid, he remembered this was in Lebanon. And I remember I said that this was just a few years after a really nasty civil war there. And uh, the kid remembered being a teenager who was mm -hmm. killed in a, um, you know, he was he was helping his friends in a militia. And they were in it. They had a sort of a, um, a, a gun emplacement. Right. And. And he had been killed by shrapnel, is what his memory was. And, um, and so the, the family of the kid who was killed, and this is maybe, you know, the kid was 19, and mm -hmm. this was maybe eight, eight years after, after he died, and the kid was seven, six or seven at the time. But the family had pretty much accepted him as their their lost son. And so when someone in the family died, even though he had older, at the time he was the oldest in the family uh -huh. before he died. And then there's a seven year old who came to the, to the, um, you know, to all the uh, ceremonies around this death in the family and took the role of the eldest son, even though now his, he had siblings that were well older than he was now uh -huh. and uh and so you know he, he they just he just fulfilled the role of uh of the dead the dead child in that family interesting but, Go ahead. <clears throat> well i mean you know so they, they, some of these people had lifelong relationships with their family and then other people you know once once they sort of just quote made the connection to the family that they mm -hmm. had remembered, they stopped being, they stopped talking about it almost right. immediately. You know, they had been, they they maybe talked about it a lot, and maybe they'd even had emotional difficulties, you know, mm -hmm. saying that they missed the family. But then once they made the connection, they were okay, and they was like, okay, I'm on with my new life here, and they stopped stopped worrying about it. Well, I can see how that could happen because I mean. You know, all your young life, you're dealing with a lot, like you feel like you're someone else and you're living in this other life. But then when you're finally able to get that off your chest, you know, and, 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 and make those connections and you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's like, okay. Right, exactly. And that's, I got that's this going on. It, that's what it looked like. And, you know, the I main, can see that. The, 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 if you just see the facts of these cases written down, mm -hmm. they're very compelling. And you think, well, if, if all this is true, you know, of what they're saying, then it's hard to explain it in, in a normal way, as I said, uh -huh. but, you know, so people say, well, okay, you know, we know that, um, that if you do brain surgery and you damage uh -huh. a certain part of the brain, that memories are gone, you know, that uh -huh. you lose memories of a certain type. And so if that's true, then the complete destruction of the brain should obliterate all memory. 
So in other mm -hmm. words, they're saying there's lots of evidence that all the things we think of as personality come from physical reality, come from mm -hmm. brain cells and neurochemistry, et cetera, et cetera. So they're saying, okay, so they're starting from a position saying, so these stories can't really represent um, reincarnation because if so, what what is it that's reincarnated? What is it that's that emerges from a previous personality, somehow survives physical death, and somehow mm -hmm. is transplanted into a new body? How does that happen? Nobody has any any hint, any mm -hmm. suggestion, or any evidence or anything that could allow that to happen. So they say, okay, so these cases either have to be, they have to be lying, it has to be intentional fraud, or it has to be that, um, or maybe some delusion mm -hmm. or insanity, or, or maybe that, you know, culturally they're being encouraged to do this mm -hmm. for various reasons, either status or, or just through the emotional, you know, inability to accept the loss of, uh, of a loved one. And, and then, you know, maybe that they, you know, witnesses are notoriously uh, inaccurate. You know, they, they misremember things. Right. They think they see things that they don't see. Their memories change over time. You know, they create new memories in order to fulfill a narrative. So I kept all these things in mind where, whenever we were interviewing these families and these kids. And I didn't see any evidence of any of that. You know, mm -hmm. they all just seemed completely normal. They didn't care if we believed in this or not. Um, and they were just answering our questions. And in some cases, you could see their emotions, you know, that they, they really, that this was real to them. Mm -hmm. And they just seemed very genuine and, and, and very, they certainly didn't seem to care, if, you know, if they mm -hmm. made their case or not. You know, they were just answering our questions. So that, in the end, that was the thing that impressed me the most, that these just seem like intelligent, normal, sane, honest people to me. That kind of leads to my next question is, in looking at all these cases and having gone out to talk to these people, did you find a common thread? Well, one, one thing, that, yes. I mean, the common thread was that these were kids who, who started making these statements or making these claims way, way before they could read. You know? Sure. Um, so that was, that was the, the, the thread that really tied them together. Um, but the other thing was that there were a huge variety. I mean, it wasn't like all people who died violent deaths, uh -huh. for instance, that they remembered. Uh -huh. And it wasn't all, you know, people of their same, um, cultural or religious group either. Sometimes, uh, Hindis would remember. Hindus would remember the life of a Muslim or vice mm -hmm. versa. Um, some, mostly it was same sex, but there were cases where um, a, a boy remembered the life of a girl or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So almost any, any variation you can think of. In some cases, the deaths were very close to the birth of the, of the child. And in some cases they were further away. I mean, None of them that I encountered were multiple generations away, although some people did have more than one previous life memory. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. 
you know, some, they had some from earlier lives, but none of them were, you know, hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and also they weren't celebrity. That's the other thing about a lot of hypno hypnosis things is that they're either glamorous people or, you know, they remember glamorous lives. Cleopatra, yeah. <laughs> but these were people who remembered the life of like a, you know, a middle-aged truck driver. Right, right. You know, so there was no glamour associated with it at all. <laughs> it was just like very the the lives they remembered were just as ordinary as the as the lives they were living. Sure, sure. And and also they didn't. The other thing that really struck me was that these cases, you know, people who said, "Well, of course, um, Hindus will make believe these cases because it supports their religion." Uh -huh. Well, there were details of the things that they remembered that didn't that went against what the religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, there was very little to no substantiation of the idea of karma, which is that you were rewarded or punished for behavior in a previous life. I mean, there'd be somebody who remembered um, the, the life of a, you know, of a very uh, laudable person. Mm -hmm. and, it's a little kid who's living in squalor somewhere, you know, so where is the karma? Mm -hmm. And, and the Druze believe that the transmutation, the transmission of the soul or whatever you want to call it happened instantly upon death to a, a birth that was happening right then. But the Druze children didn't support that. They were, they mm -hmm. remembered lives of somebody who died two, three years before they were born. Mm -hmm. So, if this was all a sort of cultural stunt to support their beliefs, it wasn't, you know, they weren't doing a very good job of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, while you're saying that, I remember I just heard something, some, some, another show somewhere where the gentleman had been saying that when we die, we're given a choice. We're given, a, you know, after the life review and all that, we're given a choice to either come back and reincarnate right away or stick around, you know, back there. So that kind of, falls in jive with, with what you're talking about, where maybe that's why um, some of these kids, you know, when, when you find out about the death that, that happened, that it happened right, it happened the day before they were born or the day they were born. Yeah, well, that was very, that I mean, that was very rare mm -hmm. that, that in these cases. And um, so, you know, there was even one case where there was a grown woman who had mm -hmm. a seizure of some kind and and this is in a, in, a, in a village in India, and she kind of fell down in the fields and everybody sort of gathered around her and, and she didn't revive. And then suddenly she came to, only she said, hey, who, where am I? I'm not, you know, I don't belong here. And came mm -hmm. to remembering the life of a woman who had been, <coughs> who had recently been killed, as it turned out. So that, that was weird. I mean, you know, so it's very hard to make any generalizations about mm -hmm. the specific details of these cases because they're really all over the map, which oh, I, I took as being fitting of a natural phenomenon, you know, because when, when you look at nature, there's always a lot of variety in, in any given phenomenon and there's a whole range of possibilities. And that's, you know, and that was what this reminded me of. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said earlier, I love the fact that you guys looked at looked at it from a scientific point of view. 
because it really does need a lot of this stuff needs to be looked at from a scientific point of view because a lot of scientists won't look at this stuff and right, it's good to have that right but, but there's also problems in science which is that you know you can't design an experiment very mm -hmm. easily to test this you you know mm -hmm. you have to just encounter these things you know by hearing about them you know you can't it's you know it's very hard to sort of put this you can't put this in a test tube no or so it's more like social science you know it's more like uh, epidemiology or something like that yeah but if you talk to enough people and you take your notes you you know and, and you, you get enough notes put together you begin to see those comparisons you know with the oh, cases yeah, absolutely and that's what he did he he, he had thousands of cases in his files that he had documented and he did statistical analysis on them and and uh, tried to find regularities and thing and mostly what he found was that you know there was a whole range of of possibilities like mm -hmm. i said i mean they weren't all the result of violent deaths not right. everybody even remembered their deaths and some you know some did and some didn't um so yeah it's but you know but there are always people who are saying well you know okay so the big hole in this scientifically is what's the mechanism uh -huh. you know how does this happen and nobody could even come up with a reasonable theory that you could test for you know how does a um, how does somebody's personality actually exist after the destruction of the body and brain and how uh -huh. does that personality transfer to another body and brain and you know people said stuff like well there's an astral body well what's the evidence uh -huh. for astral bodies there is none you know uh -huh. there is no physical evidence for astral bodies so you know that that makes it difficult to say okay this is fascinating this research and these are really uh, evocative um, collection of data here but then where do you go from there? What's the next step in the scientific investigation? You know, the next step would be to find some theoretical possibility for how this could happen. And, uh -huh. you know, I, I just haven't seen any evidence that that's, you know, some people say, well, you know, this whole weird sort of quantum physics thing could explain it somehow. Uh -huh. But there's no connection between you know, I've looked into that, and there really is no connection between the, what they know about quantum physics and uh, and how some personality could transfer from one body to the next. So that that's you know that's the big mystery, and um, and uh, like I said, it's you know that's what I try to explore in in the um, afterward to the twenty fifth edition that uh -huh. that will be coming out next year. As a journalist, what surprised you the most? Well, when I remember, you know, I had a book contract based on uh -huh. a proposal. And when I met Stevenson at the airport in, in Paris, getting ready to go for our first trip together, fly to Beirut, Lebanon, I was thinking, what happens if I mean, I'm with this guy for like one day and I realize he's a fraud or a loony? Uh -huh. Then you know, then I don't have a book. Uh -huh. But I thought that was quite possible. I didn't. Uh, but then you know, I, I I had talked to him enough before so that 
what ha what I suspected was true is that he was a very serious, honest, dignified guy who, uh -huh. you know, who just was very careful and hardworking in his research and who walked me, you know, I, I at the time I was in my 30s and, you know, and he was 80 and he and he could walk me, you know, until I, you know, until I was exhausted. He'd get up early, he'd skip lunch, you know, walk for miles and miles in uncomfortable situations. And he's like wearing his tie and jacket, you know, in this heat. And, and he was, he was really an amazing guy. When you would ask questions, or when he would ask questions of these families, did he ask them individually or did, they, did he ask them as a group? Because I know. No, no, he, as, it was, he asked sometimes he sometimes he'd okay. throw a question out to the group and sometimes he'd ask them individually and sometimes okay. it was through interpreter and uh -huh. sometimes they spoke english you know it was a whole variety of things yeah because the reason why i asked that is doing ghost hunting like i do on the side and having come from a from a journalism background like yours that's one thing i do is if i have a family that, that that's having issues in their home i will take me separately to talk with them so that they don't you know, sit in front of you because if people sit in front of you, right? I mean, they're going to be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Blah blah blah, and then, then, right. then no, they'll start no, building was, up on it. He, he he was very careful to to isolate, you know, testimony and to uh -huh. to make sure uh -huh. that it wasn't polluted by. And if and if there was a source of contamination in the testimony, he would disregard it. He only uh -huh. was interested in finding uncontaminated testimony. So, like for instance, he said to me. You know, once these kids meet their previous life family, then uh -huh. anything they say from then on is suspect because they could have, you know, the family could have told them stuff. Right. Know? So, so he was really only interested in the claims the child made when, you know, that they were documented by various people in a believable way. Sometimes they were written down even and uh, <laughs> claims that, uh, you know, that weren't that appeared to have no normal way of knowing about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, all kids have imaginary friends. So what advice do you have after, after, after doing this research for people to look out for this, this sort of thing happening? Well, I, I think in general, it's always good to take your kids seriously, to draw mm -hmm. them out. You know, don't, don't instantly shut them down or express your mm -hmm. opinion about their beliefs you know uh -huh. if they start saying oh you know this 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 little sprite was talking to me over there don't say oh you're you know you're imagining things just say oh really what did they say you know what uh -huh. were they like how do you know when do you see them you know just be curious about it curious and accepting and listen to them i mean kids are fascinating and the more you uh, draw them out and more you're willing to sort of hear what they have to say, the more interesting it gets. Tom, I want to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, and I can't wait for I can't wait for the next book. Oh my gosh. Okay. I love this stuff. All right. well, I would love to have you yeah, I'd love to have you on when the next book comes out. Yeah, well when the twenty fifth anniversary comes out in June, call me back up. Sounds good. How can people find you, sir? Oh, I'm at, uh, I have a website, tomschroeder.com, which has all about me and my books. It's T-O-M-S-H-R-O-D-E-R.com. There's no extra letters in Schroeder, no C and no extra E. So okay. Just all right.
All right. Thanks. All right. So, thank you very much. Bye. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Have a great one. All right. Bye. All right. That was really cool. I mean, I'm really into that stuff, and I'm so glad he came on. Tomorrow we're back at our usual time, and we're going to be talking about Sedona and the energy vortexes that, that are there with Benjamin Lone Tree. He's going to be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. He's done a lot of research on Sedona. He comes from a uh, he comes from a background where he understands all about those energy vortexes and everything. So he'll be here tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. So we're at our usual time. I want to thank everybody for coming today. And again, if you like what you saw and heard, please be sure to follow on Facebook if you haven't done so already. And please be sure to subscribe on YouTube if you haven't done so already. And leave me a thumbs up, happy face, all that good stuff. Anyway, I appreciate you all coming today, and I'm going to let you go. And uh, I'll give you his contact information and all that stuff on his books. And uh, we're going to call it a day. So here we Website, tomschroeder.com, S-H-R-O-D-E-R.com. And the book is Old Souls. It's a great book. I've, I, I've read half of it. I haven't got through the whole thing, but it's a great, great book. And his other book is Fire on the Horizon, Seeing the Light. Acid Test, and uh, the most famous writer who ever lived. And, of course, those can be purchased at Amazon and his website. So I'll see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.